podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another Wagon Wheel here, uh, recorded live on Spotify Green Room, where you can download the app and follow me and then get alerted when we go live with these things. Obviously, we also put this podcast up on YouTube and also goes up in the Red Inca feed. Uh, if you're a big fan of this sort of stuff, the latest Red Inca podcast is really good with me and Vish, where we go through the entire year of cricket in an hour and a half, which is about well, 365 days, not enough to actually explain what happened, I suppose, technically. But it was a big year in cricket and we tried to <laughs> cover as much as we could. This podcast is made available by our friends at Patreon. Huge shout out to them. You get the opportunity to ask early questions on Patreon as well. So thanks to everyone who has. There's quite a few questions coming up. We'll get to those in a moment. Also a big shout out to everyone who's sent us support on Buy Me A Coffee. Bodyline t-shirts for their cricket t-shirts. I'm not wearing one today. And also to Manscaped. Remember, you can get 20% off and free worldwide shipping with Manscaped, their lawnmower 4.0. I used mine yesterday. I don't know if that's too much information for you, but I did, and it was wonderful, as usual. Big fan. So go to manscaped.com, put in the code REDINCA, all one word, and you get 20% off there. But just huge shout out to everyone who's, uh, it's been quite a crazy couple of weeks for me with, what am I up to? Six tests of overnights. So if I look like I'm very tired and out of my mind, I am actually very tired and out of my mind. Also, in a couple of days, I'm going to be commentating West Indies Island for TalkSport as well. So just to add more madness onto everything else. I mean, yesterday I watched about nine hours of test match cricket, but over three different continents. I probably would have watched more if it wasn't for the raid as well. So it, look, it's been a crazy time, but so big, big th- shout out to everyone. For those who don't know, it's great if you can support us on Patreon, obviously, and we're trying to bring in a third podcast every week. So that money will definitely help there. But even if you don't, just by sharing on social media, liking things, reviewing things, rating things, all those sorts of things really do help us. And so any way that you can help support us would be great. But to the Patreon, Steve, 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 who's a new Patreon, says, watching Boland come in and be an asset to the Aussie side, maybe think about the rest of the Aussie bowling depth chart might look like. Yeah, so he's got uh, Richardson, Nisa, Bolin, Skekity. Big fan of Skekity. I interviewed him a few years ago um, after a big bash game. And like he bowled the last over. And I asked the uh, Brisbane Heat manager if I could come down and chat to him. And he just sat on the boundary talking to, to me. Real, I thought, And he was really young then too, like 21, 22. But just seemed like a really smart cricketer. Um, uh, yeah, obviously, uh, those are the main ones. Who have you missed there? You've probably missed um, Stanlake who's obviously very interesting. Um, Tremaine's probably f- not quite in, uh, you know, in the reckoning anymore. I'm trying to think if there's anyone else. Um, but they would seem to be the, the main ones. But yeah, I, I would say Richardson's probably going to be, Richardson's probably going to be the fourth guy in. And maybe if he's good enough, and I think he probably is, they can rest some of the, you know, the, their three main quicks. Um, Nisa is uh, really, really probably a squad member. I mean, he's not an all-rounder, but because he can bat a little bit um, in the same way that Cummins and Stark can, he's really, really handy. Um, and Boland and Skekity and Stanley all give, you know, sort of uh, special skills. Like you could see how Boland would go to England, for instance, and, you know, Skekity might really uh, build himself into perhaps even the, the next bowler on the depth chart behind someone like Jai Richardson. Um, and Stanley, if they can ever get him right, obviously is could be the best bowler in the world um, with his particular talents. Um, I don't think he will be now, um, which is sad, but I still think he's incredible. 
Elle says, um, I've wondered why we don't see part-timers bowl more in tests. The old adage about bowlers winning matches, but then we pick teams with less than half of them bowl. Take the Brisbane test. Leach was getting smashed all around the ground. Why wouldn't you throw the ball to David Milan in that first innings? Okay, well, I can tell you, uh, Al, directly why they didn't give the ball to David Milan. It's because Leach was getting hit by left-handers, um, and, or, or and, uh, specifically Warner, although also Labuschagne, and they thought a part-timer would get a hit. And here's the thing. There's a reason why David Milan is a part-timer, right? There's a reason why Joe Root averages 40 uh, with the ball, why Carl Hooper averaged 40 with the ball, why, you know, why Steve Waugh was probably high 30s, or I, I'd have to check his numbers. But it's because they can't take consistent wickets. And really what you want to do for those particular bowlers is you want to use them when they are, what's the best way of putting it? You want to use those bowlers when they're in the best possible situation. So for someone like Darwin Milan, you're occasionally going to have to throw him in just because it's a bad day. But if you want to get Darwin Milan to be consistently good, really what you want to be able to do with Darwin Milan is bowl him when there's probably a couple of right-handers there or there's left-handers and some rough um, or the pitch is just ragging. Right, those are the sorts of situations you want to use Darwin Milan. Otherwise, we know he's not going to take consistent wickets because he's never taken consistent wickets. And I think if you see anything now, it's actually we're going further away from part timers in Test cricket. And I think that's because we've just realised it's not an efficient way to to use those, those players. And it's very hard to be a player. Look, look at look at someone like Ben Stokes. He does have a lot of natural bowling talent, but he's still not a frontline bowler. Like it, it, there's a perfect example in, in the first day of the SCG test where he he bowls a half tracker, one ball, and like a real half tracker. Like most test bowlers don't bowl half trackers like that anymore. And then the next ball he bowls an unplayable delivery, and and that's what you get with those sorts of part timers. And sometimes that can work, but it's also why Ben Stokes is a slightly higher average than what you'd expect from a frontline bowler, and why Dawid Milan is a part timer, and why Joe Root is really a good bowler, especially in the second innings. But in the first innings, he doesn't really get as much assistance. So I think that's why. Uh, Ray says some commentary in the India um, South Africa series. What's the story of the Joburg pitch? It's a really interesting pitch, Ray. Um, I don't know how much I've been watching uh, from up there in Canada. Uh, but it's a really interesting pitch because it's been, it's had sideways movement and I want to say inconsistent bounce, but it's almost been consistently higher than you would expect. But I think some balls have acted normally. Um, and then, of course, uh, I, I'm recording this while the test match is still going, but it seems like the pitch has also then flattened out a little bit as well. Um, the pitches on the high vault, um, of which you probably know more than I do, Ray, uh, I've, I've, can be quite weird. And the way that they react during a game um, is s sort of the opposite of what we think generally. They often think that those pitches are better to bowl on for a seam bowler when the sun is out, which is the opposite of how cricket law sort of tells us. The, the other really interesting thing about South African pitches in general is they really believe in South Africa that climate changes changed their surfaces. Um, that doesn't really help you with this particular one. But, you know, the more I talk to people in South Africa, the more they were like, no, our climate has changed and our pitches are changing with them. It's really, really interesting. That's They think that's one reason why they're producing more spinners now um, and that spinners are, are being more useful in South Africa. I'm not, I'm not sure that really um, answers your your question, but I think if you've got a pitch like the, like the, uh, the India-South Africa one where there is sideways movement and also not completely consistent bounce, batters are always going to struggle. I think it's quite a fun test um, of the bits I've seen in it. Ian says, if you're an England selector for the West Indies tour, would you take the majority of the Ashes squad and give them a shot at redeeming their winter? Or would you take the majority out of the firing line um, given this tour is on the back of 18 months of bubble life? I probably wouldn't worry about either of those things. What I'd really be looking at now is what are the players that, we're, that we want to give 10 to 15 tests to over the next 
you know, year, year and a half. Um, who are the players that we really think in the short term are quite good and which players do we want to look at for maybe a more slightly more long-term reasons? I, I'm, I don't worry about form um, so much. I, I don't worry about those sorts of things, but I do worry, you know, I, I would certainly want to look at that. A surf says... Um, this question arises out of a discussion you had a couple of weeks ago answering questions in green room. Actually, so if, just before I get there, someone asked me a question about the batting averages and how they're dropping and how you tell your friends. And I and I said that Dean Elgar's um, batting average had dropped. Um, and I don't think it has um, uh, in this time. So uh, just a huge apology out to my Dean Elgar slander for one of the few batters who batted in the period before and this period who's managed to hold on to his average and even uh, improve it against pace bowling slightly, which is brilliant. Um, but you were saying for batsmen who are in their decline as an analyst, would you say there's a cutoff drop in average or other stats that might indicate that this is a long-term issue rather than a temporary drop of form? You generally surf what you're looking at are two specific things. I'm not really worried about the average drop-off, although obviously eventually that's the biggest problem. But what I'm probably looking at is are they still going out in the same ways that they've always gone out, but they've just had a higher run? So let's say uh, it's Bairstow and he's going out LBW, but even at a higher rate than normal. Is that something that he can work on or is it now at his age something that he can no longer handle? I think MS Dhoni in T20 cricket is a really interesting one. The way that he dropped off against, I think I'm, I think I'm right about this, but dropped off against spin. That's the sort of thing that you expect to see an older player do. If he can, if he can hold the line in other things, obviously an older player with experience, we also know what we're going to get from them. Um, in his case, you have the all-round talent um, that you might go forward, but that's what you're really looking at. So if they're if they're, if they're, if they're stopping really good at the things they're really good at, so Faftu Plessy is one in Test cricket where it's like he just stopped being able to score against um, um, seam bowling, and he'd always had a weakness just outside the off stump, uh, but it complete he wasn't able to mask that weakness anymore. That, for me, is more of a problem than his average dropping because that shows to me that he always knew he had that and now he doesn't have the ability to be able to counteract that anymore. I'm more looking for things like that within someone's game uh, rather than the actual average drop-off or anything like that. The average They could have a couple of run-outs. They could have been on a couple of low pitches. But you're looking at how they're getting out um, and whether they're being able to, you know... You, you know, for instance, sometimes it might be... Um, uh, you might have a player who's really good against the short ball and they go through about a two-year period where they're not so good against the short ball. Um, it's then worth, you then have a look at it to see if that's something that just happens. You know, there's a natural fluctuation. And if that's the case, you're just like, well, actually, I think this player is still fine. Um, or if you, you have a look at their technique against the short ball and you're like, actually, something has changed here. Um, so you can either work on them with it or or it's too gone. So it, it, it's a really difficult one to answer, but it's a good question. Uh, James says, do you think social media has created unity and mutual understanding of different cricket cultures across the world or is it just told us new ways to swear at each other um look i think i started my career before sort of social media took over i think crick info was the first big bang um in 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 the way that we consume cricket it was so far ahead of american sports websites and you know european sports websites to begin with that it meant that you couldn't just be a home fan anymore. Oh, sorry, you could still be a home fan. If you were a writer, you had access to everything else. And I think I was probably one of the first wave of cricket writers to come through that. And I was there when the older cricket writers were on Twitter for the first time and watching them react to that was was incredible because they'd just written whatever they wanted and no one had ever questioned them. And suddenly, um, <laughs> and suddenly it's completely different, right? It, you know, everything's going on. 
And I think that's kind of the same with, with your fans. Like, if you have a look, I, I did a tweet yesterday, James, where, uh, you know, about Bangladesh and, and New Zealand, and of course the Australian and the Indian fans just trying to pick holes in New Zealand's record. I don't know why you would be trying to pick holes in New Zealand's record at this stage, Brig, that they made the finals of the last three um, tournaments in different formats. But it's very easy to poke a hole in that. Like, the Australian guy was like, ah, oh, um, yeah, New Zealand didn't make any runs in Australia. And it's like, yeah, but they still averaged 36 runs in the last five years per batter, which is higher than anyone else in the world. Like, it's a, these are easy things to be able to pick holes in anymore. So those sort of that sort of Homer fan, they're never going to go away um, and they're still going to be loud. But I actually think that, you know, for me personally and the sort of cricket community that I am in, I just think that social media has been a huge boom. Uh, don't get me wrong, uh, the reply guys are still really boring and, uh, you still get really random, stupid messages and all that sort of stuff. But as a general rule, you just learn a lot more. Like, you know, if I write an article now, um, the amount of different people with different backgrounds who have the ability to contact me about it and go, oh, it's funny, you know, this reminds me of something that happened in Nepal cricket or somewhere else. So for me, I think it's really great. But I, I don't think we can, you know, the reply guys, um, and they almost always are guys, um, who don't watch as much sport as you, but are absolute experts, um, uh, at what they do are still going to be the loudest voices and the most common voices because that's the casual sports fan um, and they're out there. Um, and also there are a few people who obviously have decided to almost become troll famous um, within cricket and we've seen this in other sports as well. It's not a, certainly not a cricket thing. Um, they can be very frustrating and there's heaps of those in cricket um, from from the sort of top level Michael Vaughan all the way down to, you know, the, you know, the person with maybe one or 2,000 followers who, says that you know very explosive thing so that they'll get more coverage i mean in in many ways i think you know the algorithms are the problems um which i think you know i, I follow a lot of tech writers and, and they said that and as someone who's recently gone onto tiktok you really see how powerful those algorithms are um but i think generally bringing people together is probably a better idea but if we can learn new uh, swear words as well um uh james like benchot um, which I hope I pronounced correctly. Um, you know, that's also great. Uh, Christopher says, does the role of county championship need to be clarified as a business point of view? Attendance as broadcasting revenue can't be enough to support it on its own. Look, I actually think that uh, we can make a lot more money out of county cricket than we currently do, weirdly. And, um, because we've seen the numbers of, of the people who are actually willing to watch those live streams and listen to the broadcasts. Uh, so I actually think we can make a lot more money out of county cricket and probably first-class cricket around the world than we currently do. Uh, but the idea of first-class cricket should be to set up your international teams. That's how I see it. Um, and uh, that's tough because that's not what county cricket was invented for, right? So it does have to be changed. And and you're right, you know, things about what Gam Weston's talked about, about giving teams bonuses and all those sorts of things. I, I think there's lots of great ways that we can look at um, uh, incentivizing counties. Uh, but realistically, um, and, and a lot of county fans won't like this, obviously, but realistically, if you want the, you, the England team to be as strong as possible, then the county system doesn't need to be changed in many different ways, not just ripped up. And, you know, that doesn't mean getting rid of, Derbyshire or, you know, or anything like that, but it does need to be changed. Um, Jake says, Australia have uh, struggled to find a consistent partner for David Warner at the top of the order. He's now 35. Uh, what are the chances that they have a fairly big opener problem in a couple of years like England? Look, I think everyone has a fairly big opener problem. Like batting in test cricket at the moment is really tough. David Warner has struggled away from home as well. So he's not exactly um, 
a bank at home in a way. Um, yeah, I think they're going to have troubles. I think the the general, put it this way, Usman Khawaja wasn't in the team and he's averaging 40 in test cricket. Tra- and Travis Head and Usman Khawaja, I think, are both flawed batters, but still obviously very talented in, in many different ways. I think Usman Khawaja is probably a better player now than he ever has been. Um, and so, look, there's absolutely no doubt that Australia is starting from a better platform than England, but Marcus Harris is a rather opener, right? And he's, you know, he's got issues within his game. Um, the fact that they keep going back to him sort of tells you that they're not particularly um, stocked up with openers. Um, but I think England's problem is probably a far deeper problem than um, than anyone else. I mean, Cameron Green has struggled so far in Test cricket, but look at the batting average that he's coming in with. Uh, you know, again, look at Head and look at Kawaja and these sorts of players. Um, it's, I think it's a far stronger position than England's in. But everyone's struggling for batters, I think, Christopher. Oh, sorry, that was Jake, wasn't it? And Simon says, in term, in, term, in conversations about the England test snafu, a solution a solution suggested to improve pitches in county cricket uh, by making them flatter and better for fastballs and spin. How would ground staff go about this? Look, weirdly, I'm probably more I'm probably more trained to be a groundsman than I am anything else in cricket, but I'm not really an expert in, in this exactly. But I'd be calling up New Zealand because New Zealand did this. All right. So I think, um, Simon, I think there's a fairly easy one. You follow New Zealand. It wouldn't even be the first time that English cricket has followed New Zealand and then had more success than New Zealand if, if they were to get this right. Um, because they did it in white ball cricket as well. So um certainly that's where I would be I would be contacting the groundsman in New Zealand and going, How did you manage to, to produce so many batting pitches this despite your your climate? Neil says, um, New to this new uh, Patreon. Thanks, Neil. Uh, I was just wondering, given the struggle struggles of England in particular. Uh, have found in putting together a settled lineup. Do you see any merit in a horses for courses selection uh, policy? So he's talking about Keaton Jennings um, uh, in in the subcontinent. Yeah, I think they've tried that. The problem is, you really have to commit to it. When I don't know if you if you heard Neil, but we did a podcast with Chris Broad, and he talked about how he was a horses for courses selection um, to play in Australia years ago. This isn't new, right? Teams have done this for a long time. The problem is. Getting players to buy into it is trickier than you would think. I know one player was a fast bowler, um, was selected for an Asian tour. It might have been India or Sri Lanka, I can't remember. And they said to him, we're picking you because we think you're an Asian specialist. And he's like, thanks, because you know I have taken all those county wickets as well, <laughs> which is fair, right? But at a certain point, I think that is realistically the best way you're going to get. I, I really don't think we should think about 11s anymore. 11s are, and, and saying things like, oh, he's got that spot. There are very few players who are all conditions players. There are very few players who are, you know, um, good every single different role or, or role um, um, pitch type or, or for, you know, um, in, in that way. And so realistically, yeah, um, uh, we should do more horses for courses, but we haven't, we've made the 11 into this really special thing. Whereas realistically, you know, matchups and pitch conditions and all those sorts of things should play a huge role. But if someone makes runs, then usually what happens, Keaton Jennings makes runs in Asia and then they try and play him again outside of Asia and it doesn't work. Right. Not saying that he specifically is an Asian specialist, but just in general, that that's generally what happens. And then you end up picking the player. So if you look at England, you know, they've got Hamid and Dawid Milan in this team. Dawid Milan should probably be playing in Australia. I think that's fair to say. And Hamid probably shouldn't be. But they were both in possession. And I think it's that in possession thing that we need to get rid of in cricket. And James says, um, I read a Crick Info article which said that reverse swing scientifically does not move any later than conventional swing. 
Uh, does it just seem that the direction of movement is harder to pick from the bowl's release, or is there more to it than that? James, you did send me the link to this, but unfortunately, I didn't get a big chance to read it. It's a, a really interesting piece, um, and I had a bit of a skim through it, which isn't really fair as it's a proper scientific article. What I would say is this, that generally, when you're bowling conventional swing, there is a very early tell from um, from the ball in that it starts to, um, out of the hand, it shapes in a certain way, and reverse swing doesn't. So it's not, I think we say that reverse swing swings later, which isn't always the case because you can do that with conventional swing as well. But I think what we really mean is that there isn't that early tell for batters, that early shape as the ball comes out of the wrist in the same way. And you've got to remember that the balls are fundamentally different by that point in the innings as well. You know, um, different weight sometimes because of uh, the moisture level in the ball, um, different condition. So so it does feel different to batters, um, but I haven't read that full article, but it's a really, really fascinating one. So thanks for bringing that up. And thanks to everyone uh, for, on Patreon. But let's get to the questions in the room. Kyle. Hi, Jerry. How you doing, mate? Good, thank you. So kind of following up, I already had this question in my head, but your earlier question mm -hmm. about part-timers, I often hear commentators call for part-timers to break big partnerships or use the golden arm mm -hmm. nickname. They did a lot with Joe Root in the Ashes series. Is there any statistical evidence that a part-timer is better disposed or uh, well-disposed to breaking a big partnership? Or is that just something that's worked its way into cricket common knowledge, kind of like being it hard to bat under lights? <laughs> yeah, I think I think basically what they're saying is uh, they're giving it they, by calling a golden arm. It's quite, quite stupid. If you really had a golden arm, you'd average twenty one with a ball, right? And you'd be a professional bowler, <laughs> right? What? And and I think what they're trying to say is that there are there are certain bowlers that um, you can bring on at certain times and feel confident enough that they can and they can give you something that you don't have. So Joe Root quite often gives England something they don't have, even if they have an off spinner in the team. He bowls faster, right? So he's legitimately giving you a different kind of option. That sort of golden arm thing is nonsense because if he had a real golden arm, he wouldn't average 42 or 43 in test cricket, right? There is no situation where it is better to bowl Joe Root than Pat Cummins as a general rule, just because we know that that is, is how it's going to be. But we also know that there are times when Pat Cummins has already bowled and not taken a wicket. Um, and, you know, if you look at Carl Hooper, Carl Hooper was a very good example of that in the West Indies. He Very similar to Joe Root. They were a, a seam bowling dependent team. He played as the fifth bowler, realistically. Before him, it was Viv Richards. Neither of them were great bowlers, but what they could do is give you a little bit of control. They could get through their overs quite quickly, um, and they would often get wickets when there hadn't been a wicket in a while, and that's because that's why they'd been thrown the ball. Does that make sense? Like, they were only given the ball because there hadn't been a wicket in a while. So any wicket that they have is probably going to look um, slightly more dramatic than uh, a normal wicket from a normal bowler. But but the two bowlers in the last uh, in the last five years, uh, might even be seven years, who are the best at breaking partnerships are Ben Stokes and Neil Wagner. Now, the reason that they're the best, in, and neither of those are golden arm guys, although it gets used on Stokes, but I think Wagner's even better at it, the reason is that they're actually both very good bowlers on flat pitches because that's what they have almost specialized in, right? So Wagner's like, I don't need the new ball. You guys do everything you need to do with the new ball. You, you pretty boys at the front do that, and I'll do the hard work in the middle. So by definition, he has to be good at getting out guys in the middle overs. And Ben Stokes has been very similar. Ben Stokes is not a particularly good new ball bowler, which is interesting because him and Wagner are quite similar in that way, but they're very good at bowling with the old, old, older ball. Now, in one case, we call Ben Stokes and Golden Arm, but Neil Wagner is actually better at that particular position. So I think that kind of tells you the way that we look at this and the sort of flawed nature of it. 
But I think where part-time is a really important is that you've got to think about it from, uh, I, I, there was a really interesting one, I think it was Jimmy Anderson on day one at the SCG, when he's bowling, he was bowling to Marcus Harris and he's bowling around the wicket and he's bowling really well to Marcus Harris, but he can't get the edge. He comes over the wicket, changes the angle and gets the wicket almost straight away. I can't remember if it was first ball or not, Kyle, but it was it was pretty early on, right? And there is absolutely no doubt that making test batters change anything slight gives you an advantage. So if you're bowling really close to the stumps and you come wider on the wicket, we see Tim Southey's an absolute master of this. Mark Wood's quite good at this as well. We see Shane Warne in the old days. He would bowl a couple of balls from really close to the stumps from over the wicket. Then he would bowl a couple of balls from really wide of the stumps from over the wicket. Then he would bowl around the, the wicket. And what is he doing there? He's giving the batter three different paths, right? If you think of about a part-timer from that point of view, uh, even if you've got Moe Ali in the team, Joe Root has a different kind of bowling action than um, Moen Ali, and he bowls a little bit faster, and his off-spinner doesn't rag as much, but his straight ball is sometimes more um, venomous because he bowls a little bit quicker. That's what a part-timer can do. And that's really what the commentators are trying to say. Throw something different at these guys. Now, why I think teams are going away from it is because we can actually train our bowlers to do that themselves. And I think bowlers are now a lot more uh, experimental with maybe not lines and lengths, but release points uh, and sides of the wicket. Um, and if you look at someone like Mark Watt or Kyron Pollard in T20 cricket, even where they bowl from further back. So I think we can do all those same sorts of things regardless, but it doesn't mean that part-timers can't still be a very, very valid gamble in certain situations. And if, as long as you're putting the game in their, in their advantage, then you know there's no reason why um, Dawid Milan can't be handy at times and other part-timers can't be handy. But if you're expecting them to take wickets permanently like what australia did with marcus north i think we know that doesn't work right yeah i was gonna say it made sense to me that as a change of pace but i was just wondering if there's any statistical that like oh you bring a part-timer and he gets a wicket in his first two overs this percent of the time no i i, I certainly haven't seen that although i think some of the reasons part-time you struggle is you bring them on they take a wicket and then you leave them on Whereas actually, you're probably better off to yank them back out, which seems really harsh. But when you've got a wicket, what you really want is, and, unless the pitch is, pitch is completely in favor of the part-timer, you know, if Steve Waugh's bowling and the ball's nipping around everywhere or, uh, you know, something, something of that sort of nature. Generally, you probably want to take them back out. Um, you know, if Darwin Milan gets you a wicket and the, and the pitch isn't ragging, you want to take him off, really, because you want then Jimmy Anderson or, you know, uh, Ollie Robinson or even Jack Leach to be bowling um, to, to the batters. So I think that's certainly something that we should be looking at going forward. But it, it's a really, really interesting one. Thanks for your question. Thank you. There is a joke in cricket that we started protecting our testicles 100 years before we put on helmets. I'm not here to give you a history lesson on the cricket box and its invention, but this is a generally true statement. So that means as cricketers we are more focused on protecting our downstairs than our head. And yet when so many of us shave our balls, we do it with a crude implement made for trimming a beard. Well, Manscaped are here to make sure, like the cricket box did 100 years ago, that our balls are completely looked after. Manscaped have the Lawnmower 4.0, a stunning device that trims your pubes like a delicate late cut. Well, without the actual cutting, I suppose. And I have used this, so you're going to have to trust me when I say this is a shockingly good piece of kit. And maybe this is for another time in the story, but a man who has injured himself down there and had to go to hospital to get to the whole area fixed. I'm glad that there's something that feels a lot safer. Huge thanks to Manscaped for making the Lawnmower 4.0 and also for giving us a discount code. So get 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code REDINCA at manscaped.com. Come on now, 20% off, free shipping, manscaped.com, REDINCA, you get it. 
Thanks to the ICC regulations, you can no longer use saliva on your balls, but you can use Manscaped. Steve, are you there? Hello. Steve, how are you doing? What's your question? So, if you get a chance to interview an IPL analyst, how would you approach it as a content creator? I am an IPL analyst. I don't think I've ever interviewed an IPL analyst, have I? Uh, I, I, when it comes to, it doesn't matter who I'm talking to, I'm probably already talking to them from a point of, I know what I'm interested in. So if you want the very basic one, Steve, it doesn't really matter what the person is. What is that person going to be interested in? So um, a couple of years ago, I had a really bad interview with Luke Ronke. And the reason was uh, New Zealand um, uh, offered us Luke Ronke at the last minute I hadn't, didn't have time to think about it, and I ended up just doing the normal boring questions about what is it like to, you know, be in New Zealand, an Australian who plays for New Zealand, blah 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 blah. And I could, the minute that started, I could see his face droop, right? Because he'd been asked that a million times. Whereas I remember interviewing Shane Warne a couple of years ago, and I, and all I asked him was questions about leg spin. Every single question was, a, you know, a really high end question about leg spin, and. Um, through making, you know, through through doing that, Shane Warne just wanted to keep, uh, just wanted to keep going, um, and, and talking and talking and talking, and that's essentially what you're looking for, right? You are looking for a position where you are, um, you you you're looking for a topic that the other person wants to talk about. So generally, what happens is semi-famous people and famous people get asked the same questions over and over and over again, right? So what you're really trying to find is what does this person want to talk about. Because that is probably what they're going to be most interesting talking about, right? And sometimes it will be, um, and sometimes it will be um, things that they are that they talk about a lot, right? That does sometimes happen. But I always say when people ask me to be on podcasts, and they always want to go through my my life journey and how I became this person, I'm like, I've done this a million times, right? I've said this a million times. Find something that I've written about or you've heard me talk about with real passion and get me on your podcast. That's what you want to be able to bring. That's what you really want to be able to do. So it doesn't matter who the person is that you're interviewing. What you really want to be able to know in that situation is what do you think they're going to want to talk about? Or what have you heard them, um, you know, tweet about before or heard them on an interview talk about with passion or, you know, that sort of thing. Chances are they've talked about their life journey or how they got the job over and over and over again, right? So that's not what they're going to want to do. Thanks for your question, Steve. All right, Johan, are you there? Hey, Jared. What's your question? Okay, so my question was regarding a couple of players. In this case, it was Mitchell Santner and Ashton Agar. So these players are very successful in T20s because of their accuracy. And that's something that you need in test cricket. But uh, these players haven't been successful in test cricket. Could you explain to me why that's the case? Yeah, you just dropped out. You said Ashton Agar. Who was the other player you were talking about? Mitchell Santner. Okay. I'm not sure that either of them have a delivery that is uh, a genuine consistent threat in test cricket and i think to be a you, you are talking test cricket aren't you yes test cricket and i think in order to be able to do that you need to have a consistent threat right um i think you need to be you need to be in the position of um uh, your stock ball has to be dangerous right so so i remember when um oh my god uh why have i forgotten his name ajanta mendes came through and everyone was really excited. And I was like, yeah, it's great. No one can pick him at the moment. And so obviously he's going to take a lot of wickets. But how's he going to consistently take test wickets when his stock ball is not dangerous, right? So it doesn't matter if it's, um, it doesn't matter if it's Anil Kumble, 
um, or if it's Yassir Shah or any of the, even the bowlers who look less threatening because of their drift, because of the rip they put on the ball, because of the place, uh, you know, the, the way they put it, their, their general stock ball still puts you in a bit of danger. And I think with, with Mitchell Santner and Ashton Agar specifically, I'm not sure that that is the case. I don't think international batters face them and go, this ball is putting me in any danger. If you're not doing that with your stock ball, it is very, very hard to take consistent test wickets. You can be a good athlete like both of them are. You can be clever like both of them are. Um, but unless you're incredibly skillful or your stock ball is absolutely brilliant, really hard to be a test quality spinner uh, because uh, it's, it's, you know, you're not putting any pressure back on the batter. Does that make sense? Yes, that, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much. No worries. Shalin, you there? Hey, Jared. How you doing? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks. I just have a question about Rassi van der Lussen. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it took so long for him to be given an opportunity in the South African team? I know like he's not played that many games, but he seems pretty solid and like adaptable in his approach in all formats. Like, Do you think they missed the boat with him because he's what, 32, 33 now? I mean, I, I don't know Rassi very well, um, but I have chatted to him a couple of times. He's a real, I think he's, I'd have to go back and look at his record. But I think he's a player who's probably got better and better because he's a real hard worker and he's very, very, uh, I, I, I don't know, he's a bit like um, someone like Dimuth Karunaratna or Shan Masood, like really eager to learn and to use new methods and to push himself. So without without going into his, you know, his first-class record um, in, in, in his entire career, although I know, I, I assume you're probably talking more than just first-class cricket, but, but I, I think that, from from what I know of people in in South African cricket, they seem as someone who has continually got better, not someone who was naturally very good. And he's also, uh, and I and I don't mean this in in a bad way, but he's he's not a star like um, in many. If you look at if you look at him as a cricketer, he's probably I don't know the best way of putting it, but like he's probably a very like uh, like a role player, like a strong role player in a team, right? And so he, I don't think those sorts of players quite often get overlooked. You know, we're not we're not talking about someone who is you know A B de Villiers here. Um, we're not talking about you know de Kock. We're talking about someone beneath that with limits within his game. Um, but yeah, I think he's I, I think he's a very strong um, player. But also think that probably the positions that he was good at. I mean, where would you have fit him fit him into the team beforehand? He can really bat what three, four, or five. Um, is he better than Faf, A.B. De Villiers, um, you know, De Kock and Pat Five, um, Hashim Amla, Callis? Do you know what I mean? Like, where do you where do you fit that sort of a player in? They they had a good lineup, and I, and and when I, when I say sort of good replacement level player, he was never going to push probably that even even someone like Bavuma. Um, I don't know about their first class records, but I wouldn't have thought that he's um, that he crushed Bavuma as a first class player as well. So you know, it's I would say that he has developed as a player um, and that there are probably a lot of players who could do that. Generally, here's he, his, his one for you. Generally, when someone is not picked early on, it's because there is a glut of players in their position. So if you look at the, the, the one, and this really angers pa- uh, Pakistani fans when I talk about this, but if you look at the, about the forward alarm one, right? I, I think forward alarm was clearly a test match quality player, but I also think that his best positions in Test Match Cricket were probably going to be batting four or five. And they had Yunus Khan and Misbah Al-Haq. Now, they could have batted him at six, and they certainly put a lot of time into Asid Shafiq, um, but they didn't, right? They went with the younger player, and that's probably a mistake looking back on that. But but Asid Shafiq actually did some 
um, stuff in test cricket as well. Um, it just, he never quite got to the next level that everyone assumed he would make it to. That's generally what happens, right? You know, I always go back to the Glenn Chapel rule, man. Glenn Chapel's a really good cricketer, um, but he happened to be born in the exact same era as Jimmy Anderson and, uh, you know, and Matthew Hoggart, right? Glenn Chapel wasn't that much worse than, than Matthew Hoggart and, you know, consistent. You know, he's not the same level of bowler as Jimmy Anderson, but there are many other bowlers who played a lot of tests for England who aren't any better than Glenn Chappell. Um, Darren Berry is a wicketkeeper. You know, Stuart McGill even, right? We, we see these sorts of players all the time. Um, and I think specifically in Rassi's case, the way it's been projected to me, and I'd have to go back through his numbers, was that he was a bit of a slow starter. Right. Sorry, Joe. Uh, there's just a few questions in, in the written bit. Jost says, hi from Slovenia. Hello, Jost. Tom says... Who's the best number five um, in world cricket as a pure batter? Is it still Ben Stokes? I think it would be Ben Stokes, would it? Um, who bats number five for New Zealand? <laughs> um, uh, I mean, there aren't many people making runs anywhere. Um, I mean, Ben's, uh, Ben Stokes is probably there, but I wouldn't have thought so. But it um, doesn't seem to be many elite top tier number fives. Um, I don't. I mean, there aren't that many elite batters at the moment. Uh, Tom, I think, is probably the best way of putting it. It's a really hard era to bat in, so I think everyone is struggling. Um, but I'm trying to think of trying to think of uh, some number fives around the world that I'm missing. But yeah, it's such a tough era to bat in. Uh, Dayat says, um, "Have you looked up New Zealand's record with Kane without him? Uh, without him, they look like a completely different team." I mean, yeah, I mean they that would make sense. They he's a very good player, <laughs> um, but I haven't. Um, I don't know how many matches he's missed. But thank you to everyone who's written in the questions. Dayat, you there? Yeah, hi Jared. So, uh, just to specify what I was asking about in chat. So, mm -hmm. uh, like, I wanted to go through the past records of New Zealand, but I thought the green room would be on Thursday. Uh, so, I haven't had time actually to go through the records. But yeah, so mm -hmm. I actually wanted to go through the records of New Zealand and see wherein Kane has missed a test. And I mean, he's absolutely an incredible batter, but also mm -hmm. the stuff he bring, brings with his leadership and tactics. So, like, uh, because as you have always said that uh, New Zealand has revamped their cricket in the past few years, six mm -hmm. or seven years, and have become an incredibly wonderful team. So I just thought if Kane as a complete package brings to something to New Zealand that they perform better in his presence. Can I, can I ask you a question? How many matches has he not captained there? Yeah, no, I mean, he missed the India test, but they played well in them. New Zealand certainly did play well in them. Yeah, no, no, but that's why I'm, I'm asking, because I... I thought it was only about five games he'd missed as captain. Is that is that sound right? Yep, yep, yep. It's not a lot. I really wouldn't be other than the fact that any captain who's going into a test match without the best one of the best batters in the world is at a disadvantage to begin with. You've also, I, I think, as a general rule, like makeshift captains, it's 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 really random. Like we end up judging them, but so many different things can happen. I, I don't think that. New Zealand specific, like Kane Williamson would have been there and on the phone the whole time. Um, uh, Gary Stead is still there. Ross Taylor is in the team. I really, and uh, Tim Southey and Trent Bolt. Right, there's a lot of people there. I really find it hard to believe that Kane Williamson is that important as a leader. Um, and it's probably more just small sample sizes as much as anything. Yeah, I just thought on this theory because I was giving a thought that India has had had a good team for a while now and haven't won many ICC tournaments as uh, in the past six or seven years. But uh, New Zealand always seem to go into the tournaments as underdogs and have always outperformed everyone. 
and uh, it has happened recently uh, since the 2015 world cup and i'm if i'm not wrong uh, kane has also begun captaincy since then af- after mckellum left in 2015 so i thought mm-hmm. if a correlation between kane becoming captain and new zealand uh, being underdog and performing well under his presence and i like as i said i haven't had the time to go through the records no i mean they certainly started improving before kane was captain right and brendan mckellum probably had the biggest transformation on on this side of of almost of any major cricket nation over the last 20 years brendan mckellum had just a huge impact i mean they were basically turning into west indies yeah their players were going off playing in the ipl they recommitted to test cricket they specifically wanted to get better at that format but they also wanted to get better at all three formats um uh, it's a better team this is a better team than mckellum captained right um it, you know it is improved uh the level of i mean i'm not sure mccallum gets into this side as a batter anymore right that's how good this team is now mccallum probably doesn't get into it mccallum certainly never had carl jamison to play with um he probably didn't even have ags patel right um he, in fact realistically mccallum's team could have been improved if they'd used jeton um better when he was around um so no uh it, it's not this whole magic magical captaincy stuff is no I, this is a better team now than what mccullum has had um so you would expect new zealand to be uh you know better on the field i mean for a lot of the time that mccullum mccullum's openers were like martin guptill who never made any runs and um jeet Ravel, who never made any runs and probably forgetting two or three other uh, oh bj watling who never made any runs when he was opener right they couldn't even have openers look at the difference between that and having tom latham at the top of your order right and having you know will young and conway and B, uh, you know bj watling's last few years and um uh, and i think wagner started to get good under mccullum but got really good after mccullum um uh tim southey improved massively um over the last couple of years especially with the wobble ball scene but just in general i think he's just far better bowler than he was um in that period uh you know that's why judging captains on 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 their win loss records uh is fraught with danger right i mean it doesn't it's it's almost impossible at a certain point because uh you know um i'm pretty sure i i'd be good at captaining the indian bowling lineup and I'm not a genius captain, right? And I'm not an inspirational leader. I'm pretty sure I could get genuine, gen, general good results out of that team um, with, the, with the ball because it's so varied. There's so many options for me. Um, I've got five frontline bowlers over and over again. You know, I'm living the dream. Um, whereas <coughs> if I'm captaining, I'm trying to think of a team who has a bad bowling lineup in the world at the moment, I'm not sure there is one. Um, but if I'm captaining a team with with a bad bowling lineup, well, I could be Mike Brearley. I'm probably not going to be able to make it that much better. So um, I think that New Zealand are fundamentally a much better team now. And and uh, I'm not saying Kane Williamson hasn't played a part in that, but I think in the ways he's played a part, it's probably more less to do with on-field tactical stuff. It's more to do with supporting players and getting them in the right areas and you know, forming a partnership with Mike Kesson and forming a partnership with Gary Stead and having a partnership with New Zealand cricket where they're like, okay, you know, we're going to have a really consistent policy here. Um, we're going to we're going to find the most talented players and we're going to back them. And Henry Nichols, his form is going to fluctuate, but we believe he is. You know, he might be the best number five in the world, <laughs> uh, but we we believe he's the best number five um, in our team or whatever situation that you're looking at. There, that's where Kane Williams. That's where leadership makes so much more thing. Whether they, you know, 
yank their second change out or whatever. It's, most, most of that's nonsense. It's for the cameras, right? The real leadership is is done uh, in in the work that you do off the field. Um, and the way that you can support your players to grow and develop. Um, and let's say, and I, I, don't, I don't think this happened under um, McCullum rather than under um, Williamson, but let's say McCullum just went to Wagner and said, why do you even need to bowl with a new ball, mate? Let's just make you the best 20 to 80 over bowler in the world. Um, and you can bowl these huge spells. Let's just get you to bowl these huge spells. Why take you off when you are a different kind of physical specimen than, than other bowlers? If you can bowl these longer spells, that, is uh, so making turning Neil Wagner from a what, what did he look like when he started a fill-in player to one of the best bowlers in the world is so much more important than oh look at this we know that Joe Root's got a problem with Cameron Green's so we're bringing Cameron Green on and all right that's the level I, I can't even compare the difference of levels between those two things make sense yeah, makes sense. Uh, can I ask a follow-up? I have a different question. Sure. I was wondering, uh, like, batting has become difficult in the past uh, three or four years. And mm-hmm. the ongoing test match between India and South Africa, both of the teams have sought to counter-attackings and uh, looking to score runs. So, like, is this the way to bat on difficult pitches where you constantly look to score runs? And if not, three and a half or four runs, you, like, try and show intent and score as much as you can before there's a ball that has your name on it? No, because if you're batting on difficult pitches and you're playing attacking shots, bowlers are going to get you out more. So no, as a general rule. Um, there are certain pitches, though, where it probably does favor you. If the ball's coming onto the bat still quite well, for instance, even if it's moving around sideways on the seam and there's a little bit of inconsistent bounce, perhaps, um, on the pitch, you have a... What's the best way of putting it? Uh, a natural advantage in, in, in counter-attacking or attacking on that kind of pitch. Um, if you go to the pitch at the MCG, um, which was also a pitch that was in favour of the seam bowlers, attacking shots on that pitch is just probably going to get out a lot. If you're playing attacking shots in on, on the ragging pitch in Ahmedabad when the ball is either ragging sideways or skidding on because it's a pink ball, probably just going to go out a lot, right? So there is no one way of batting in test cricket because there is no one pitch and no one situation. So uh, you're not going to test bowlers or seam bowlers are completely on top at the moment. You're not going to get through them just by like being more attacking. And if that was the case, wouldn't we see more guys with high strike rates doing that? Wouldn't Josh Butler um, have a higher strike rate? Um, And and the reason that they don't is because it's really hard at the moment to score. Um, And if you're taking risks, you're probably going to go out a lot. Thanks for your question, Jamie. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you, mate. What's your question? Fantastic. It's an England question. So from my perspective of just consuming cricket through podcasts mainly and listening to TMS, it's so hard to work out what happened with Ed Smith and him him getting his job just sort of dissolving from underneath him. So what actually happened there? Did he get fired? Did he decide that this would be a, a you know, a better structure. Can you draw a line from that to what's happening now to the test team? No, not at all. I mean, Ed Smith, I don't think he was a particularly good selector, although I don't think he did a particularly bad job either. Although I think you can, you'd certainly say that the whole Butler situation, he, he caused a great big problem in the middle of England's order in what was their strength by bringing Butler in, which he's been okay. Has he been any better than any of the other options? I don't think so. Smith had some pretty 
I mean, Butler is a, a perfect example of that. Had some pretty like strong views on things, um, and I don't think that particularly went down well with sort of the coaching structure and Joe Root specifically. I think Ed Smith also wanted the credit for things in a way that maybe was a problem for some people in English cricket. But that was the person Ed Smith is, right? I mean, this is a person who's been caught um, plagiarizing work before. Um, he, you know, has always been out and, you know, tried to make a name for himself. And I'm not having a go at him. I mean, I try and do the same thing. I can understand that. But when you put a person like that in that situation, it's awkward. But the problems with English cricket are not related with Ed Smith having his job and being bad at it or being good at it or Ed Smith not having his job. Right. The problems with English cricket are the fact that they haven't been able to find consistent batters for a very long time and that the bowlers, the best bowlers that they still produce are still um, completely almost dependent on in, not English conditions, um, but to be at their absolute best, they are English conditions kinds of bowlers. And that is really hard to travel um, and be successful consistently, even if they're really talented bowlers. And obviously Broad and Anderson are, and Ollie Robinson looks really talented as well. Um, and Joffre's uh, uh, phenom as well. So the, it's the bowling's not so much a problem, but their batting has been a problem for nine years. It was bat batting was a problem before Ed Smith was a selector uh, when he was a TMS commentator. In fact, um, all the way through, um, that's a structural issue. I think more than a selection issue. And I think that if you look at what England have done over the last little while, so how many openers is it? Twenty two? So eighteen? Eighteen openers um, uh, that they've tried. They've tried everyone. It's not a selection issue at a certain point. And I think what they were trying to do with the selection, I think they got it slightly wrong. I think that you should have a, a director of cricket or a general manager, whatever sort of role that you have, who should be working in conjunction with the um, coach and the captain and saying to the coaching captain, okay, this is your team and this is your style. What sort of players do you want? And I'm going to go off and find the absolute best players who I think can do this job. And I don't think that's quite what they ended up with. I think what they ended up with was Silverwood and Root making decisions on players that they don't always see that much of, right? Um, and they might see them all in the odd international. They don't see them week in, week out. They haven't seen them on Lions tours, all those sorts of things. And, and I think if that's the case, then you've gone from having a selector, which is a flawed position. Like I, I think a selector doesn't really make a lot of sense um, uh, in, in sport. And we're one of the few sports that I think still has that sort of archaic position. Um, but they haven't improved it, and I think that's the problem. And I think there it, there are structural ways that they can improve it. They've tr tried with their scouts and everything in English cricket, and I think that even if English cricket have done this the, the bad way, uh, in a bad way, I think that generally they're probably getting towards a much better system in the future, just not um, directly at the problem. But yeah, I, it, this isn't the case that like Ed Smith was great and then they got rid of him and they were shit because they were shit beforehand, right? They couldn't bat beforehand. And this isn't the case of... Ed Smith came in and ruined the team because they were struggling to find batters beforehand as well. I think this is really a case of they're trying to move it forward to make it more professional and a better structure. And I think they just got that they got it slightly wrong. Um, and and it's hard, uh, you know, as someone who's worked in selection of cricket teams, you know, the the, the captain and the coach makes it all more tricky. Um, in 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 the way that it works and the power that the captain has compared to the coach. Um, compared to other sports. And so it is a trickier sport in many ways. And that's why one reason I don't think that the selector um, specifically worked. I really think it needs to be a more of an overarching position 
um, uh, I'd much rather that Ashley Giles was, uh, you know, in charge. Or it doesn't have to be him. It could be Andrew Strauss. It could be Ed Smith in that job, right? Whoever they want to go with. Um, I think that's a much better position because I think that's you, 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 just selecting the best players is not ideal if the structure is broken in the first place. And I think that's what a general manager or a director of sport does in other sports is they're trying to fix the system and pick the best players. And in cricket, we sort of separated this all up, and I don't think it works. So do you think England have, have sort of accidentally got themselves into a, an NFL-style general manager, head coaching situation, or that's what they're trying to do? That's what they're trying to do? Just so yeah. terrible. That's what they've accidentally got yeah. themselves to. If you look at basketball, like, so LeBron James is probably more like a cricket captain than like most other people in basketball because he's so important to the LA Lakers that he is now involved in who they who they bring onto that team. But the problem is that LeBron James isn't spending 40 hours a week looking at the best talent to bring in, right? He's thinking, oh, I really like that guy, and I've always liked that guy. I'm going to bring that guy in. Or I played against this guy a couple of times, and I found him really hard to, to go up against, so I'm going to bring him in. That's not the best way of doing things, and that's kind of what we've what England have created with their system. It's like Joe Root and Silverwood are kind of locked in that. Now, at least Silverwood was involved in county cricket. So, you know, compared to Bayless, he's a slightly better one. But it's, it's you really you really want, and what England are trying to do is they've got scouts now. So no, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but they have scouts. So they have like, so they would send, you know, um, is it Mike? Mike Hendrick out to have a look at seam bowlers and they would send wicket keepers out to look at wicket keepers and they send their spinners out to look at spinners, right? That is really good. That's getting towards that sort of NFL system that you're talking about. But if there's still a bottleneck at the top on the actual decision-making and you're still allowing people to make decisions based on, um, oh, well, you know, this guy's played a couple of games for us. And uh, the, 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 one of the best ones would be Saqib Mahmood, right? My guess is that he's not in this squad, at least in part because Silverwood and Root don't want him in the squad, right? And when he played for England, especially when he first played for England, I think that's probably fair enough. I think if, if you'd only seen him play for England, you would. I, when I first saw him, I was like, why is this guy being picked? I don't get it. He's not 90 miles an hour. He doesn't do a, a hell of a lot with the ball. Now, having watched a lot more of him um, and having watched him play a little bit more, I watched him play in some Lions games and I, I watched him play uh, some first-class cricket. Now I get it because I've watched a lot of him. And I understand that he's sort of like a slightly slower version of Pat Cummins in that he doesn't get a lot of seam movement, but he gets consistent seam movement. He can bowl the wobble ball and he's very accurate. Um, and all of those things come in. But if you'd just seen him play a couple of times for England, I could see why you would think, oh, we don't need him. We'll take Craig Overton, right? And I think that's where the problems are coming here. Whereas actually, I think if you had Ollie Robinson in the team and you had Short Broad in the team, you probably didn't need Craig Overton. You probably needed um, uh, Saqib. And I think that's where these sorts of um, problems are coming in with the selection. So um, does, does that does that make sense? It, it's just, I think they're getting towards a good, better system, but cricket just makes it more difficult because of what it is as well. And they haven't quite got there. Yeah, no, that does make sense. I mean, it also highlights to me something that I've suspected, but I don't know for certain is that, and you, you'll probably pick your words very carefully here, but with everything that's happened with Yorkshire and the racism scandal, the lack of diversity of thinking is probably oh. reflected there in what you've just said, the the lack of awareness of, of one's own blind spots. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, I've been putting to, together teams of recent times, like, you know, working in cricket, but also, um, you know, uh, for my businesses as well. And it's like, if you just hire a bunch of people like you, 
they think like you. And, and it's really good because you're in the meetings. It's like, yeah, that idea is great. And everyone's on the same thing. But actually what you need is that, that, that uh, conflict, right? You need someone to go, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. And when I was um, helping put together a team, I was bringing in all these coaches. And I remember someone, I, I, I can't remember if it was an owner or someone involved, and he's just going, why are you, why, this is such a random group of people. And I was like, yes, they all have completely different backgrounds. That's what you want is people with a bunch of different backgrounds. And I think that, you know, I, I don't know if you've heard the podcast I did with Duncan Stone, um, but, you know, there's a lot of my friends, that, uh, you know, I suppose are, are now, what would you say? They're either grizzled vets in counter cricket or they're um, coaches, right? Or in the media. And they're all between the age of 35 and 50, right? And I've got a lot of friends in that age group because that's my age group. And they, they're those people that I wrote about when I came through and I knew and now work with them in the media and I've worked with them in teams. It's stunning how similar they all think, right? Mm. And that's in English cricket. And then you go to Australian cricket, and it's stunning how similar everyone in Australian cricket thinks. Then you go to West Indies cricket. <laughs> and, and it's a little bit more diverse because there's different islands and different backgrounds. But again, it's quite kind of similar. And, and really what you want is you really want something else. And when you have, you know, the majority of, of, um, of English cricket is run by, I would say, sort of two groups. You sort of have the old school public school system, right? Um, and they end up certainly in administration and as captains and those sorts of positions. And then you have this sort of this, what I would call the grizzled vet class. These guys who had to struggle on shit wickets at Wantage Road. And um, they've stayed in all the worst hotels in Derby. And they know, they know where every, you know, where the best services are on the M1 and the A1 and all that sort of stuff, right? Really similar people end up getting churned out of that system. And that is a problem. Um, for cricket and it's a problem for cricket right across the board i remember nathan lehman who works in english cricket he was saying that he thought one reason that rugby had a bit of a boom and cricket didn't have it when it comes to thinking about the sport was that rugby was an amateur sport and suddenly all these people came back when it was professional but they were lawyers and they were doctors and they were healthcare professionals and they were they ran their own businesses and they did all these different jobs and they all came together with all these different skills we haven't really ever had that in cricket and we haven't really embraced the sideways thinkers. So no matter what you think of Ian Pont or um, uh, what's the, uh, you know, some of the random batting coaches or Stephen Jones or, you know, some of those sorts of people, they're real outliers within the system. Um, and it's very, very tough. Whereas if you look at the better sporting systems around the world, and this isn't just cricket, um, so this isn't English cricket. This is right across the game. But if you look at some of the better sporting structures around the ball world, you do get these real outlier thinking people more often than not. And I think that in cricket, we've found a way to stop those people coming through. And even if they're wrong, even if, you know, John Buchanan, a lot of his thinking was wrong. John Buchanan, when he was coaching at the IPL, was like, we need a wicket-keeping coach. And like, go back and read the articles of former players going, oh, this guy's an idiot. A wicket-keeping coach. Of course we need a wicket-keeping coach. What, why on earth would we not need a wicket-keeping coach? It's such a weird thing to think we didn't need, right? Um, especially when we pick so many people for their batting and <laughs> when they can't even keep. I mean, I, I think I wrote this huge thing um, about this 13-14. Uh, England in 13-14 got smashed in the faces and they had Graham Gooch as their batting coach, but they had Alistair Cook, right? <laughs> Alistair Cook could turn to a batting coach and Graham Swan didn't have a spin bowling coach 
you know, his experience, that's fine. Johnny Bairstow had to take over midway through that series and then wasn't a wicket-keeping coach. In the end, Matt Pryor had to do it. And Matt Pryor is a very skillful wicket-keeper and obviously a very good mentor. And But he's not, he wasn't a coach, right? And also, he was helping the guy who was trying to take his job, right? Those are the sorts of things in cricket where, if you look at it from an outsider's perspective, you'd be like, why on why have we not made why have we did it take us so long to get fielding coaches why did it take us so long to think of these new things why did it take so long to literally get someone to look at the footage of the at the end of the day's play like i think the cricket australia hired their first video analyst in 2011 right did we not have video footage beforehand right so these these mistakes and this is right you, it doesn't matter where you go jamie right it, like any industry has this right if you keep hiring the same people they keep doing the same things and i think that is a problem right across cricket and some teams it doesn't matter because they have more talent and some teams get on a good role and some teams have really good home conditions and some teams just have more cricketers to pick from and sometimes you get lucky all those sorts of things happen but genuinely i think that that is something that holds back cricket cultures around the world Thanks for your answer. Really enjoy your podcast. I've, I've come on to it from TikTok, which is really weird for me. Um, <laughs> Beautiful. It's good to see I've converted someone from TikTok. Thanks for your question, mate. Have a good day. Thank you very much. Cheers. Sadeep, are you there? Okay, Jared. Okay. I would like to ask you why it's so difficult to find a genuine test all-rounder. Why it's in a unicorn among the animals. India has been searching for Kapil Dev for the last 30 years. Same mm -hmm. case with South Africa. Jack Callis. England might, you can say, Andrew Fintor, Botham and Ben Stokes. But, I mean, I was looking through the uh, ICC top test all-rounders list and I saw on the number fifth, there was the name of uh, Mitchell Stark. With due respect to Mitchell Stark, I think he has overachieved uh, being on the top five uh, all-rounders. To, to be fair, the last couple of years, he's actually improved his batting. And, but you're right. Oh, no, there's some random names in that list. Sometimes you see some of the names in that all-rounders list and you're just like... Uh, well, here's here's my first question: Do David Boone and Curtly Ambrose have similar body types? No, not at all. Right. So there's your first thing. Physically, two different jobs. Right. Now, a very good athlete can overcome this, and most of the best all rounders, especially seam bowling all rounders, tend to be absolutely brilliant athletes. But some very good athletes in spin bowling all rounders as well. But generally, to be a great all rounder, you have to be a phenomenal sort of athletic creature so if you look at even we remember ian botham as being a bit fat but obviously you know played professional football um simon o'donnell uh, you know uh, played professional football um keith miller played professional football um uh there's a lot of very very good all around you know if you look at someone like capital dev probably could have played an absolute bunch of sports um jason holder probably could could play a couple of different sports ben stokes definitely could have played a couple of different sports. So to begin with, you have to be an absolute top tier athlete, but also how many people are actually good enough to be at one, uh, to be at good at one of those skills. Mo most teams struggle to either find four frontline bowlers or six frontline batters. And now you're expecting to not only find four frontline bowlers and six frontline batters, but also find someone who's good enough to be good at both of those skills. The chances of that happening are so, so rare. And as cricket gets more professional and more specialised... But the case has changed with the wicketkeepers. Earlier, wicketkeepers uh, don't used to uh, be that good batsmen. It has changed in this new millennium since Adam Gilchrist and MS Dhoni. That's because we pick shit wicketkeepers now, mate. They haven't changed. The best wicketkeeper at the age of 11, 13, 15 is probably not wicketkeeping for his, his local side. 
Yeah. Right? So that's why that has happened. Wicket keeping hasn't improved. Josh Butler has the worst stumping ratio in the history of, of, of any successful wicketkeeper in Test cricket. Absolutely bizarre how few stumpings he's ever managed to get at first class level, let alone at test level. We are not picking good wicketkeepers anymore. If you're willing to actually just, if you're willing to just go, well, I don't want to pick someone who's very good at something, well, you can do that. You can probably find a, a bunch of bowlers, uh, a bunch of batters who can average between what, 37 and 42 with a ball. Or a bunch of batters who can average between 18 and 22 with the, um, sorry, a bunch of bowlers who can average between 18 and 22 with the bat. But not really all-rounders, but that will give you a secondary skill and they'll help a little bit. That's kind of what we've done with wicket-keeping, outside of perhaps Asian wicket-keeping. Uh, but certainly that's what we've done with wicket-keeping around the world as, as, a, as a global phenomenon. So if you're willing to take a, a haircut on skill, then, yeah, you'll find a bunch of all-rounders. But if you know to be able to find someone who can consistently take wickets at Test cricket, there aren't many of them in the world. And then to also think, well, they might also have batting skill, very, very rare. And I think that when cricket, if you think the you're trying to point out to the, to the physical limitations of athlete, I mean, yeah, batting and bowling are two different kinds of athletes. Also, we, I think we know that if Ben Stokes spent all of his time working on his batting or all of his time working on his bowling, he'd be much better at those two skills, right? I think that's fair. But at the moment, England can only bowling for about 20 overs a match because otherwise he'll be too tired for batting. And he also, as much time as he spends on his batting, he then has to go and spend it on his bowling, right? Joe Root, well, Joe Root's not a perfect example, but Joe Root probably spends a lot more time on his batting um, or especially uh, or Rory Burns spends a lot more time on his batting than Ben Stokes does, right? So you've got specialization in there as well. But if you look at the last great era of gun all-rounders, it also happened to finish right at the time that professionalism took over in cricket. I don't think that's a mistake. I think in the amateur era... Uh, since the advent of T20, are you trying to uh, say... No, no, well before that. I mean, uh, basically, if, if you look at West Indies was probably one of the first professional teams in that they played as professionals in England and in Australia. Um, and then Australia became the first international side, Right. And so when Australia became that international side, other teams started doing the same thing. That's the moment we really see a bit of a drop-off in all-rounders. And the ones that we sort of see hung, hanging around were quite often guys like, you know, um, Callis um, and maybe even Flintoff, who sort of came from that sort of semi-amateur era. The more professional cricket gets and the more people work on their skills and uh, the more skills that you have to learn, the harder it is to just be a very good athlete who comes in and bats and bowls. Right, because you, you're now competing with someone who is absolutely so. You'll get you might get Shadul Takur type all rounders. Um, you might get uh, Michael Nisa type all rounders. You might get um, uh, those sorts of players who um, can can give you cameos in different different parts of the game. But finding actual genuine all rounders, you're probably not going to be able to do it. But Mo and Ali is a really good example of this. Mo and Ali on talent was good enough to bat at test level and was good enough to bowl at test level. But he never spent enough time working on his bowling when he was young because it wasn't his first skill. So he's playing catch-up as a bowler, and that really took a toll on his batting at the test level. He really should have averaged at least 35 um, in test cricket as a batter uh, when you look at his overall batting talent. And he couldn't do that. And it's partly because he spent so much time working on his bowling. That wasn't the case 30 and 40 years ago. Cricket was amateur then. It was a completely different era that you could just by being fairly talented at both those things, it allowed for it. The other thing that worth, worth looking at, um, there's a podcast I did with um, Ben Lindbergh. Baseball doesn't have all-rounders. 
because the body types are so different. And body types are, we're getting more and more towards a point where we're going to get specific types of body types in cricket. We already have them, realistically, but we're going to get more and more and more of that. It's going to be even harder for us to have all around us. Then you've got the, the three formats. I don't know. I, I, I think it's incredible that we have as many all-rounders as we do. I think we probably have more all-rounders than I think is logically possible, and we still don't have that many. And when you think of true all-rounders, would Ben Stokes actually get into a test team as a frontline bowler? Would Jason Holder get into a test team as a frontline batter? Would Ravi Jadeja get into a test team as a frontline batter? I don't know, right? Maybe if they specialized in it, and that you could have said the same of many different players throughout out the years, there's a fair chance that none of them would, right? It's really hard. It's really hard. The fact that we have any is a is an absolute miracle to me. The fact that we had Shakib Al Hassan, you know, and we didn't uh, didn't understand how lucky we were to have him. Um, you know, look at New Zealand, uh, New Zealand, South Africa, and Callis retired. They were trying to they were trying to like gerrymander three cricketers um, into the team to make up for one player. You know, the impact that you can have. Look at the amount of risks Australia has taken with. Um, with um, Mitchell Marsh and now with uh, well Marcus North and now with um, uh, with Cameron Green, right? It's because they change your team so much. But finding someone who is consistent with both bat and ball, almost impossible. Almost impossible to find someone of that level. The o- There's only been one cricketer in the history of Test cricket um, who has managed to have a batting average over 40 and a bowling average under 30, right? That's not a mistake. There's a reason for that. It's bloody hard. And that was Aubrey Faulkner, and he did it 110 years ago, right? And he didn't play that many tests. Um, chances are he probably was good enough to be a frontline batter and a frontline bowler looking at him. Um, even then, we, we don't know. Eventually, maybe he would have ended up averaging over 30 with the ball. Probably it goes on to be quite a good batter and averaging low 40s with the bat. It's really, really hard. Um, and I don't think people understand the the differences that are, that are needed in those two different skills, uh, physically and training, um, the amount of hours that you need to p- be prepared to be, you know, doing your job, all those things, all take a toll on these people. Okay. No worries. Thanks so much for your question, man. In fact, thank you to everyone. That was a re- really good one. I know I sprung it on everyone late, but uh, quite a few people came into the room as well, so it was, it was quite good. If you came in late to the live chat, you can find this on Red Inca. Our podcast or you can find it on youtube when we put them up there a huge shout out to the patreon people they make this podcast happen i can pay the bills of my producers and my editors because of patreon so please if you can go over there and help us out that would be great and we are trying to get up a third podcast as i've said before um, we're just trying to get a little bit more support whether it be through advertising or through patreon or buy me a coffee and all those sorts of things and big shout out to Manscaped. Get a 20% discount and free worldwide shipping with Manscaped with the code Red Inca, all one word. And you too can shave your balls like I did just before this last test match, in fact. Thanks for coming on, everyone. And I'll see you again next time. Mm-hmm.